Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize for not having quite enough chairs, but uh, obviously this is a very popular topic uh, for a number of reasons, and, and we're very glad that you could all join us today. Uh, before I introduce our, our speaker, I just wanted to make a couple quick notes about some of the products we have to offer at the Cato Institute. Uh, first of all, we have a daily email newsletter that hopefully many of you are signed up for already. If you're not, uh, let me know or let another Cato staffer know. We'll be sure to get you signed up. The newsletter is called Cato Today, and it's a uh, summary of basically most things that are going on at the Cato Institute, things like events, like the one you're at today, uh, updates to our blog, uh, new papers that we're releasing, all sorts of stuff. It's a good way to start off your day and get a quick snapshot of what we're working on at the Cato Institute. And uh, again, I encourage you to, to sign up for that. Uh, second of all, I'd like to make sure you're familiar with the Cato Handbook on Policy. This is a publication that we issue every, uh, every four years now, and it's intended to give you an overview of pretty much all the policy issues that are dealt with here on Capitol Hill, everything uh, ranging from Social Security reform to foreign policy uh, to, to trade, uh, all points in between. Uh, it's a good way to, to familiarize yourself with new issues as you're taking on new responsibilities at, in your, uh, your job on Capitol Hill. Uh, we do offer this uh, free of charge to all Hill staffers, so if you don't have a copy or if you have a coworker that keeps stealing yours, please let me know and we'll be happy to get you one. It's also available on our website, cato.org, if you want to uh, download it. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and introduce our speaker today. Uh, Robert Levy is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. He's also a member of Cato's board of directors. Um, he also sits on the boards of uh, the Institute for Justice, the Federalist Society, Federalist Society, as well as the George Mason University School of Law. Um, from 1997 to 2004, he served as an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University. Um, he received his Ph.D. in business from American and his J.D. from George Mason School of Law. Um, also of note is he was a, he's currently a co-counsel on the, the Heller case, which is, uh, as many of you know, the D.C. gun case, which we're expecting to get a decision on uh, any day now, probably tomorrow or Thursday. And uh, I'm sure he'd be happy to, to feel some questions about that. Um, but what he's here primarily to talk about today is his new book called The Dirty Dozen, which reviews the 12 worst Supreme Court decisions. And with that, I'll turn things over to Bob Levy. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. <clears throat> I uh, Actually, my field is investment analysis and, and software development for financial analysis, but I, uh, <clears throat> when I finished doing that, I, I uh, went to law school uh, in my 50s. So I have the distinction of being, as far as I know, the only federal law clerk. I clerked for two years, <clears throat> one year in the U.S. District Court here in D.C., and one year in the U.S. Court of Appeals in D.C. for Judge Royce Lamberth on the District Court and Doug Ginsburg on the Appellate Court. And I think I have the distinction of being the only federal clerk in history to be older than the judges uh, that he clerked for, because um, I was in my 50s when I went to, uh, to law school. So for two years, uh, the marshals at the courthouse who guard the, the building with uh, great diligence couldn't get it through their head that anybody as old as I was was a law clerk. And so it was always, good morning, Your Honor, good morning, Judge Levy, and I... Uh, <clears throat> never disabused them of that uh, notion. <laughs> I was treated with great deference in the halls of the uh, of the D.C. courthouse. When, of course, when I got up in the chambers, they told me to <clears throat> go fill the water jugs in the jury box, just like the other clerks. Um, but it was a great experience, and uh, today's uh, topic is an outgrowth of my uh, legal education. 
uh, and that is The Dirty Dozen, the 12 Worst Supreme Court Cases of the Modern Era, from a book that I co-authored with Chip Meller. Chip is the president of the Institute for Justice, which if you're not familiar with IJ, it is a public interest litigating firm, uh, the sort of libertarian equivalent of the uh, ACLU located here in the Washington area. Now, before I talk about these uh, 12 individual cases, I want to set the stage with a few comments on liberals and conservatives and how they look at the Constitution and how their views about the Constitution and public policy differ from the libertarian views that are embraced by uh, my colleagues at the Cato Institute and, and at the Institute for Justice and by uh, my co-author and by me. Now, when I, when I talk about libertarianism, I'm not talking about the libertarian political party. I'm talking about libertarianism as a political uh, philosophy devoted to private property, free markets, individual liberty, and most of all, to strictly limited government. So at Cato, we don't endorse uh, candidates or parties, and as you're soon going to hear, we're uh, equally critical of both Democrats and uh, Republicans, but we do have a consistent minimalist view of the proper role of government. So conservatives agree with us on some issues, liberals agree with us on other issues, and that's because the liberals and the conservatives are, are inconsistent. And to illustrate that, I want to offer a constitutional framework. Uh, to, to, to understand the structure of our federal system, we are well advised to look at the last two amendments in the Bill of Rights, the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Of course, the Tenth Amendment tells us that the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution can be exercised by the federal government and no others. The Tenth Amendment says that if it authorizes you in the Constitution to establish post offices and to coin money, then you can do that. But if the powers are not delegated, if they're not enumerated in the Constitution, then, says the Tenth Amendment, they're reserved to the states, or depending on the provisions of state law and state constitutional provisions, they're reserved directly to the um, People. Conservatives and libertarians generally agree on that pretty tightly constrained view of um, federal power, but there are two uh, key exceptions. The first is that a lot of conservatives, uh, but not libertarians, are willing to federalize, that is to assign to the federal government, a significant amount of responsibility over our laws, in particular criminal laws, and if you want an example of that, look at our feudal war on drugs, and civil law. Look at Congress's involvement in tort reform, traditionally a state and local function, or look at their involvement in the Terry Schiavo case. Uh, libertarians invoke a different uh, principle, and that is no matter how worthwhile a goal may be, no matter how much it is that you think you've identified a problem that's serious and you know how to fix it at the federal level, the principle is if there's no constitutional authority to pursue that goal, then the federal government is supposed to step aside and leave the matter up to the states, or better yet, leave it up to private parties. The, the second area, and the powers uh, uh, area, that conservatives and libertarians uh, differ is that conservatives are often far less anxious uh, than libertarians about concentrating a lot of national security power in the executive branch. The libertarians remind their conservative friends uh, that too much unchecked authority in the hands of the executive threatens the notion of separation of powers, which has been a cornerstone <coughs> of the Constitution for two and a quarter centuries. So the administration, including the Bush administration, uh, may not by itself set the rules, that's a legislative function, and then prosecute infractions, which indeed is an enforcement function, but then determine guilt or innocence, which is a judicial function, and after the fact, decide whether or not the executive branch has misbehaved, also a judicial uh, function. So that's the powers of government perspective, grounded in the Tenth Amendment and the separation of powers doctrine. Now, I also mentioned the Ninth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment doesn't talk about powers, it talks about rights, and specifically says that 
the fact that a right is enumerated in the Constitution, that doesn't mean that that's all the rights that we have. We have lots of other rights that we possessed before the Constitution was written, before governments were even formed, we possessed in a state of nature, and those rights we still retain, even if they're not in uh, the Constitution expressly. And that imposes yet another significant discipline on federal behavior. Because what it says is that if the federal government pays attention to the Tenth Amendment and exercises only the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution, there's another hoop that the federal government has to jump through, and that is they can't exercise even those legitimate powers in a manner that violates our rights. And the Ninth Amendment instructs that if you want to know what rights can't be violated, you look not only to the ones that are enumerated in the Constitution, like speech, religion, protection against unreasonable searches, but also to unenumerated rights as well, which in the libertarian uh, mindset would include, for example, the right to gamble, uh, the right to smoke marijuana. So if one wanted to identify a single constitutional provision that separates libertarians and conservatives, it would be the Ninth Amendment. Note, by the way, how the presumptions of the Ninth and Tenth Tenth Amendments are exactly opposite one another. The Tenth Amendment says if the power isn't there, the federal government doesn't have it. The Ninth Amendment is the reverse. Merely because the right isn't there, that doesn't mean that individuals don't have it. Individuals have lots of rights that are not written in the Constitution. So there is this key distinction between libertarians and conservatives with respect to uh, the Ninth Amendment. Conservatives treat the Ninth Amendment as an inkblot. That was Judge Robert Bork's uh, memorable term. He says, you can ignore the Ninth Amendment because nobody knows what it means. It's as if somebody spilled ink on the portion of the amendment that would have identified uh, these unenumerated rights that the libertarians uh, think we have. Now, Judge Bork uh, somehow does not uh, accord the same treatment, namely ignore the provision, to other very murky terms in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, things like due process, uh, just compensation, probable cause, <clears throat> Unreasonable searches. I mean, these are, these are terms that are every bit as ambiguous as unenumerated rights, but Judge Bork and other conservatives seem to be able to get their hands around those terms, but for one reason or another, they can't come to grips with the concept of unenumerated rights. The libertarians treat the Ninth Amendment not as if it was an inkblot, but if, as, it, as if it means uh, something. And they argue that it refers to our natural rights, the rights that we possessed pre-government, rights that came down to us through our common law a heritage, and that we still retain. And if you wanted to attach a philosophic term to that, it would be all of our so-called negative rights. Negative as distinguished from positive. Negative rights are the rights that we have that we can exercise without imposing any obligations, any affirmative or positive obligations on other people. Positive rights, or some people call them entitlements, if they're to be exercised, they do require other people to act in a certain manner. So suppose we had a right to the pursuit of happiness. That's a negative right, because I can pursue happiness and I don't need your help. All I need is for you to agree to leave me alone. Do not exercise the use of force or fraud against me, and I can pursue happiness. So it's a negative right in the sense of not imposing an affirmative obligation on you. Suppose I had a right to happiness. Not the pursuit of happiness, but happiness, the attainment, the achievement of happiness. See, that would be a positive right. Because if I have an enforceable right to happiness... That is, if I'm not happy, I can go usually to court and seek a remedy, an enforceable right. Then at a minimum, that would impose obligations on you. If I have a right to happiness, you can't do anything that would make me the least bit unhappy. 
And if you did, I could stop you from doing that. So the right to happiness is a positive right. Now, of course, the positive rights that we're more uh, familiar with are, are rights like welfare um, or the right to a minimum wage. Obviously, if I have a right to welfare, somebody has an obligation uh, to provide welfare. And those positive rights are integral uh, to the liberal view of what is the proper uh, role of government. And paradoxically, in the uh, post-9-11 era, era, we're now hearing from liberals that big government can't be trusted. Now, these are liberals that ordinarily embrace uh, big government programs, but they say that big government can't be trusted, at least when it comes to civil liberties. But one wonders where the left stands on other areas where big government involved, uh, such as, for example, welfare and public schools and the private economy. Uh, why hasn't the left's, I think, healthy uh, distrust of big government, why hasn't it extended to support for privatized Social Security and school choice and <clears throat> welfare reform and the elimination of regulations that seem to control everything from the size of a naval arch uh, to the ergonomics of uh, office furniture? Why is it that the liberals can't see past uh, two particular agencies in government when they worry about too much government? That's the Defense Department and the Justice Department. And oddly enough, those two agencies are charged with protecting us against predators, which is an indisputably legitimate uh, function of, of government. Imagine if Congress were to delegate uh, to the Justice Department, particularly if it was still under the <clears throat> control of John Ashcroft or even Alberto Gonzalez. Imagine if Congress were to delegate to the Justice Department uh, the power to pass regulations about national security and civil liberties, and it gave the Justice Department no more guidance than keep us safe from terrorists. Uh, people on the, on, the, on the left would be apoplectic and they'd have good reason to be uh, apoplectic. But when the same Congress um, delegates to the Environmental Protection Agency uh, the authority to pass regulations over the environment, and it gives the EPA no more guidance than keep us safe uh, from pollutants, uh, people on the left applaud enthusiastically. So is it the case that pollutants are a greater threat uh, than terrorists, or is it more likely the case that the left has a selective indignation about the proper role of government, and that reflects an inconsistency in the liberal mindset, just as there's an inconsistency, I believe, on some issues in the conservative uh, mindset. And, it, by, and it's in resolving this uh, foundational question, that is, what is the proper role of government, that the Constitution can be viewed through these two prisms. Uh, the powers of government prism centered on the Tenth Amendment, the rights of individuals prism centered on the Ninth Amendment, and the libertarians view the powers of government very narrowly and the rights of individuals very broadly, and that, they argue, and I argue, was precisely the vision of the framers. So with that as the uh, background, let me talk a little bit about the Dirty Dozen um, and start with this question. Why is it, since there have been 217 years that have elapsed since the Bill of Rights was ratified, why is it we've only had 17 constitutional amendments uh, over that period of time, which is quite extraordinary? And I think there are probably a lot of reasons, but there are three that are... I think most uh, critical, and two of those reasons are pretty good, and one's not so good. The first good reason we've only had 17 amendments in, in uh, 200 years is that the Constitution is an incredibly well-crafted uh, document written uh, by brilliant legal minds who had a vision of liberty that's every bit as relevant today as it, back, as it was back in 1789. The second good reason is that the, craft, the uh, framers uh, in Article 5, which governs the amendment process, uh, requires that the government jump through a lot of hoops in order to get the Constitution amendment. Essentially, you have to have two-thirds of both houses and then ratified by three-fourths of the states. And not surprisingly, that hasn't happened very often. And as a result, we have a very stable uh, constitutional framework. Uh, the not-so-good reason is this. 
um, the Supreme Court has accomplished through the back door uh, what the Congress and the states and the people could not accomplish through the amendment process. In my view, I think regrettably, uh, the court has lost its compass and that has profound implications for all of us. And that's the subject that Chip Miller and I address in the Dirty Dozen. We, we cover 12 cases that we think change the course of American history away from constitutional government and toward unbridled uh, government power. Now, this is what Madison wrote in Federalist 45. Quote, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. Now, that might have been the intention, but it certainly isn't what transpired. Instead, the court has actively participated in a vast enlargement <coughs> of federal power, while at the same time selectively protecting some, but not all, of our constitutionally guaranteed rights. Time and again, the court has rewritten uh, the Constitution, and it's done so without input from and without accountability to uh, the people of the United States. Um, some of that damage, of course, occurred a long time ago. <clears throat> During the uh, pre-Civil War period, the most infamous of all decisions, Dred Scott v. Uh, Sanford, 1857, Chief Justice Roger Tawney said that black slaves are property, <clears throat> not citizens of the United States. Plessy v. Ferguson, 1890, the court upheld a Louisiana statute that required uh, railroads to offer separate but equal accommodations for members of the white and colored uh, races. Now, those cases are repugnant, but they're no longer the law of the land. Uh, Scott was, of course, superseded by the uh, post-Civil War amendments, and Plessy was overruled by a long series of cases, beginning with Brown v. Board of Education, 1954. So much of the court's real and lasting mischief uh, has occurred much later, during the New Deal, and continues today. And that's the period that we cover in the book. 1934 to date is the focus of the Dirty Dozen. Now, I'm not going to have time to examine uh, all 12 of these cases, but what I'd like to do is identify the 12 cases and give you about a sentence on them, on each of them, so you get some flavor of what kind of cases we think were the most oppressive <laughs> cases. Uh, <clears throat> let me tell you first, though, how we selected the cases. Uh, we surveyed our colleagues, 74 like-minded uh, legal scholars, and we asked them to name uh, the cases that they thought were the worst cases since uh, the New Deal, since 1934, by two criteria. Either these cases expanded government powers beyond those that were constitutionally authorized, or uh, they had the most uh, destructive effect endangering individual liberties uh, that should have been uh, constitutionally protected. And then in making our final selections for the Dirty, dirty Dozen, we were guided by, <clears throat> I wouldn't say we were bound by, but we were guided by the results of the survey. So let me tell you the 12 cases with a sentence or two about each one, again, just to give you a flavor of the cases. Uh, if we have time, I'll talk about uh, maybe one of the cases in somewhat more, <clears throat> more detail. These cases are in no particular order. They're not in rank uh, order, but I will talk about the powers of government cases first and then the uh, the rights of uh, individuals. The first case is about the General Welfare Clause. Uh, in Article One, it says that Congress can tax in order to promote the general welfare. Now, that's been interpreted to mean not only tax, but spend money. You wouldn't tax unless the ultimate goal was to spend what it is that you're taxing. The case involved was Helvering v. Davis and attested the constitutionality of the Social Security system in 1937. There was a conflict between Madison and Hamilton. Hamilton said, 
The General Welfare Clause is another power of Congress over and above the powers that are enumerated. There are all these powers that are enumerated in Article I, and then in addition, said Hamilton, <clears throat> Congress can tax and then spend the money in order to promote the general welfare over and above the other things it can do. Madison said that's not the case. Madison said the General Welfare Clause is another impediment to Congress's action. The General Welfare Clause means that Congress can only execute the powers that are listed in Article I, the enumerated powers, and in addition to that, they must execute those powers in a manner that benefits the general public, not what Madison called the factions and what we today call uh, special interests. Well, in 1937, the Supreme Court agreed with Hamilton. And as a result, the Social Security system was approved, and that opened the floodgates through which the redistributive state was ready to pour. And now we have all sorts of programs taking money from some people, giving it to others without any meaningful uh, constitutional constraints. Second case, Commerce Clause. Wickard v. Filburn, 1942. Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce. The question in that case is whether Congress has the authority to regulate commerce that isn't interstate. And as a matter of fact, it's not even commerce. Now, one would think the answer to that was straightforward, but it wasn't straightforward to the Supreme Court. A farmer grew crops on his own farm entirely within one state. He didn't buy the crops anywhere. He grew them all. And he didn't sell the crops anywhere. He consumed them for himself, his family, and his farm animals. The federal government stepped in and told him that he was subject to production quotas. He said, where do you get the authority to tell me that? And the federal government responded, interstate commerce. Well, how can that be interstate commerce? And the court ruled, yes, it has an effect on interstate commerce because, after all, if he hadn't been producing those crops, growing them himself, he would have had to go out and buy them. And if he hadn't consumed everything that he, that he grew, he would have had extra to sell. So by not buying and by not selling, he had an effect on the supply and demand of goods that inevitably would find their way into the interstate markets. And that result, the regulatory state whereby, under the Commerce Clause, Congress can regulate, in effect, anything and everything. Uh, the third case, Contracts Clause. This also has modern-day implications. The case was a 1934 case, Home Building and Loan Association versus Blisdale. <coughs> the Constitution says this. It's pretty straightforward. No state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. I frankly don't know what could be clearer than that. <clears throat> but it wasn't clear enough for the court, which upheld a Minnesota statute that see if this sounds familiar, postponed mortgage payments uh, for financially troubled homeowners, uh, never mind the contract. And interestingly, of course, we're now seeing a replay of that very same situation as creditors are being forced to waive foreclosures uh, on subprime you know, mortgages. Fourth case, the non-delegation principle, lawmaking by administrative agencies. The Constitution says all legislative power vests in Congress. And what that means is that Congress is the lawmaking body, not the 320 or so alphabet agencies that dot the map uh, around Washington, D.C. And the reason for that is that if Congress passes an oppressive law, the voters can respond by, by throwing the, their elected representatives out of office. But if the law is passed by Congress and it's murky, it's not clear whether it's a good law or bad law, and then Congress delegates the responsibility to flesh out that law, to fill in all the gaps, to, provide all the details, delegates that responsibility to an administrative agency, unelected bureaucrats, the voters can't do anything about it. And apparently the Supreme Court has decided it, too, is not going to do anything about it. It's not going to enforce uh, the non-delegation principle. The case involved here was Whitman versus American Trucking, a 2001 case. 
<clears throat> the fifth case, and now I'm into the rights cases. Uh, these are the preceding with the powers cases. The fifth case is, uh, again, one that has current implications, and that is First Amendment free speech, this time in the form of campaign uh, finance expenditures, McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, a 2003 case. Uh, <clears throat> there is apparently this quixotic idea that money and elections should not mix. And uh, in pursuit of that goal, the court has essentially curtailed our most basic um, expressive right, and that is the right to support or to criticize political candidates. And if you ask what the justification for that is, it wasn't the prevention of corruption. That might be justified, but there are plenty of remedies on the book for corruption, for bribery, for breach of fiduciary responsibility. So it wasn't for that. The Supreme Court said the justification was the prevention of the appearance of corruption, a subject matter that nobody has been able to get their hands around. Nobody knows quite what it means. <clears throat> that law in McConnell v. FEC, the McCain-Feingold law, was upheld as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Sixth case, and one which I have, a, as you heard, a personal um, connection with, and that is the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, 1939 case U.S. Uh, v. Miller. So this is almost seven decades ago the Supreme Court established a legal regime that's been misinterpreted by appellate courts across the country to mean that individuals do not have a right to keep and bear arms except insofar as that right can be exercised in the context of militia service. And this term, for the first time since 1939, uh, the court's going to have had, has had another uh, chance in a case, uh, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, where I'm serving as uh, co-counsel for Mr. Heller, and we challenge on Second Amendment grounds the constitutionality of the D.C. outright ban on all handguns in all homes at all times for all people for all purposes. Uh, we expected a decision yesterday. We didn't get it. Uh, the court still has seven more opinions this term that it has not yet released, and so the court has scheduled additional, at least one additional session tomorrow. Most likely it will not get all seven, and so there's likely to be another additional session on Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, we should have an opinion in the Heller case. Uh, let me digress for a moment just to point out just how bad this precedent is and how it, was, uh, <clears throat> how it came about. We had two, this is U.S. v. Miller, 1939. Now bear in mind, this for 70 years has been the seminal, the only Second Amendment case that the Supreme Court has addressed, and it has guided the jurisprudence on the Second Amendment across the United States and all of the circuits. And how did that case happen? Well, we had two mobsters, uh, Mr. Miller and Mr. Layton, who transported a sawed-off shotgun across state lines in violation of one of the federal laws. So they weren't indicted for shooting a gun or, or using the gun in the commission of a crime. They were indicted for a technical violation of the registration and tax requirements of the law. And they said, no, this law violates our Second Amendment right, and they win in the district court. The district court agrees with them, but only writes a one-paragraph decision saying, we agree. It violates the Second Amendment. It goes up to the Supreme Court, and that's when the circumstances got pretty bizarre, because Mr. Miller and Mr. Layton had an attorney named Gutenson, and he didn't file a brief, and he didn't show up for oral argument. And in fact, he sends the Supreme Court a telegram that saying, says, suggest case be submitted on government's brief, unable to obtain any money from clients to argue the case. Now, the Supreme Court, astonishingly, does not reschedule the case or assign new counsel, but produces this muddled opinion that's confused legal scholars for the better part of, of 70 years. But when it was all over, the damage to the Second Amendment 
uh, had been done. And the court then remanded the case. The Supreme Court sent it back to the district court for determination of whether the sawed-off shotgun that uh, Miller had transported was the type of weapon that had militia utility. <coughs> and before the d district court could resolve that question, could retry the case and take evidence on that issue, uh, Miller was killed in a mob shootout and Leighton uh, uh, pleaded uh, guilty in that five years on probation. So the retrial never did take place. So here's a case, the seminal Second Amendment case over the last seven decades that was resolved in a Supreme Court case at which the attorney didn't show up for oral argument and never filed a brief, a case argued only by uh, one of the parties. Quite extraordinary. Uh, the next case, the seventh case, is a due process Fifth Amendment case, again, with current analogs, and that's uh, Civil Liberties versus National Security. You've all heard, I'm sure, of the Korematsu case, 1944. Uh, we are supposed to have guarantees of liberty and fair treatment and equal protection of the laws, but the court said they can be waived during wartime even if American citizens are arrested and imprisoned without any charges filed indefinitely. In that case, 120,000 Japanese were incarcerated in what was the equivalent of concentration camps, according to Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson. They were incarcerated, no charges filed. 70,000 of, 70, of those 120,000 were U.S. citizens. 18,000 of them were given declarations for valor in fighting in World War II. And some of those uh, uh, fighters, they volunteered for service from within the internment camps uh, where they were incarcerated. Now, if you think all that ended with World War II, just ask Jose Padilla. Uh, Jose Padilla was incarcerated uh, without charge post 9-11 uh, for nearly five years, no attorney, mostly in solitary confinement as a suspected terrorist. Uh, he was recently convicted, but not of terrorism charges, but of totally unrelated uh, criminal charges. Now, he may be a bad guy, and he may have deserved everything that happened to him, or even worse. But we do have a rule of law, and part of that rule of law guarantees due process, especially uh, to U.S. citizens, and Kuramatsu laid the groundwork for the later Padilla case. <clears throat> Eighth case, um, another due process case, also Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment, and this one is, involves civil asset forfeiture, and the most extraordinary facts of all the cases. Um, it's not bad enough if you are married and your husband has sexual intercourse with a prostitute in the backseat of your car taking the car without your, certainly without your permission, and even without your knowledge. The law says, and it's still the law in a number of states, although the federal government has done some things to alleviate this, the law says the crime extends to the car, and the car can be seized by the, by the authorities, and you, the owner of the car, the wife, who did not consent, who is a totally innocent owner, may not recover either the car or the value of the car. It's quite an extraordinary doctrine called civil asset uh, forfeiture. Ninth case, and this is the most recent of all the cases, the Kelo case. Kelo versus City of New London, 2005 case involving eminent domain. If you have a cherished home, you've lived there all your life, along comes a private developer and he says to the government, listen, turn over that lady's home to me because I can create a few jobs and maybe increase the tax basis. Well, the Fifth Amendment, the Constitution says that the eminent domain power can be exercised only for public use. The private developer says, this is public use. It's going to benefit a lot of people. And the court said, yes, it's a public use. Anything that's really a public benefit is a public use. And so if you think your property is safe from the government bulldozer, uh, think again. The uh, good news is that 42 states, after Kelo, because of a, a uh, 
crusade in the media by the Institute for Justice, which litigated the Kelo case. Forty-two states have now passed uh, provisions in their either their state laws or state constitutions that, to some extent, some more so than others, have trumped the effects of the uh, Kelo opinion and now prevent, again, to some degree, eminent domain for purposes of economic uh, development. Um, now, that was physical taking of property. There's also regulatory taking, and that is where regulations so impede the use of your property that the property value gets uh, seriously diminished. So this 10th case is about regulatory takings, Penn Central Transport versus New York, 1978. The rule is that when the value of your property plummets because of government regulations, you get just compensation. But the court says only if the regulations go too far. Now, what does that mean? How far is too far? Well, I don't know, and apparently the Supreme Court doesn't know, but one thing we know, and that is that the $150 million loss suffered by Penn Central because they were prevented from building another structure on top of their uh, structure in Midtown Manhattan, that $150 million loss wasn't far enough, wasn't considered to be too far. Eleventh case, the unenumerated right to earn an honest living. Um, economic liberty. Does economic liberty include the right to form your own business without unwarranted government restrictions? Uh, we would think the answer would be yes, but the court has decided that economic liberties get a good deal less protection uh, than our other liberties. In effect, the court has bifurcated uh, our rights. Some rights are protected vigorously, such as the rights that are in the Bill of Rights, voting, uh, the protection of discrete and insular minorities, and some privacy rights. But economic rights, contract, property, the right to earn an honest living, uh, those get minimal protection, and it was all done with a single footnote the infamous footnote four in the Caroline Products case of 1938. And then the final case, the 12th case, um, equal protection and racial preferences, the University of Michigan Law School, Grutter versus Bollinger, 2003 case. The rule, of course, is there's not supposed to be any racial discrimination. That's encoded in the equal protection clause. Well, the court decided it would make an exception. If a state university, in this case Michigan, the law school, <coughs> uses race as a mere this is the court's term, plus factor, part of a holistic approach to attain diversity. And, of course, we're talking about here diversity by skin pigmentation. We're not talking about diversity by ideology. If you search the University of Michigan Law School, you will not find very much diversity by ideology. Um, but if you use racial uh, characteristics to get diversity by skin pigmentation, then somehow racial preferences are not uh, discriminatory. So those are the uh, 12 uh, worst cases, the abbreviated version. Um, now, let me, uh, let me tell you in about four minutes about uh, one of these cases uh, that I think is pretty interesting, and then I'll, I'll take your questions. This case is actually not one of the dirty dozen. You know, I mentioned the case that was a Commerce Clause case was Wickard v. Filburn. And if you recall, that was a 1942 case where the guy grew crops on his own farm and he consumed those crops. He didn't get crops from outside, and he didn't sell any crops outside, and the government said it could regulate his production because by not buying from outside and by not selling to outside, he was effectively <clears throat> affecting interstate uh, commerce. Now, this had, again, a replay in uh, 2005 in a case called originally Raish v. Ashcroft, which became Raish v. Gonzalez. A much more interesting fact set, because instead of crops now, we're talking about medical marijuana. We're talking about a sick patient uh, in... California, operating under California law that said this was perfectly legal and with a doctor's uh, prescription. 
The court relied on its prior holding in Wickard and reached the same wrong-headed conclusion, namely that the federal government could step in and regulate this intrastate activity as a, um, under its power to regulate uh, interstate commerce. So on its face, it seems like the race case is about uh, the properties of medical marijuana, but the real issue was quite different. Um, again, this sick patient grew this marijuana for her own consumption in order to relieve pain under a doctor's prescription in accordance uh, with state law, but the Justice Department decided that the federal drug laws, uh, the Controlled Substances Act, uh, took precedence and therefore race was a criminal. So the real issue was not medical marijuana, but the scope and nature of the Commerce Clause. Could Congress pass federal laws that preempt state laws? Now, the Commerce Clause is Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce originally intended to stop the states from interfering with free trade, as they had done under the Articles of Confederation. Because before the Constitution was enacted, what we had was states imposing tariffs and quotas on goods flowing from other states. But race was a different situation. Because race's medical marijuana and cultivation of that and possession of that and distribution of that and use of that was all intrastate, all within California, not interstate, and there was no commerce involved, no purchase, no sale, no money exchanging hands. So the specific question for the Supreme Court and race was whether this federal law, the Controlled Substances Act, exceeded Congress's power to regulate uh, interstate commerce. And Stevens wrote the majority opinion, joined by the other liberals' uh, on the court and also by Justice Kennedy, Scalia agreed with the outcome, although he did not completely agree with the reasoning in the case. And the majority in that case held that the Controlled Substances Act is a legitimate exercise of Commerce Clause authority. Why? Because, again, applying the Wickard v. Filburn logic, supposedly sick patients in California using homegrown uh, marijuana under a doctor's uh, prescription might have a substantial effect on the interstate marijuana market, which is a market that is not even supposed to exist, and if indeed it does exist, there is already a criminal remedy for it. O'Connor dissented on behalf of uh, Rehnquist and Thomas. Uh, she wrote that the court's decision is tantamount to removing all meaningful limits on the Commerce Clause. The court's definition of interstate commerce threatens to sweep all of productive human activity into the federal regulatory reach, Thomas agreed. Now, this is a tribute to Thomas because you know he is a drug warrior. He does not like drugs, but he likes the Constitution a lot more than he dislikes drugs. So he wrote separately and pointed out that race uses marijuana that has never been bought or sold, has never crossed state lines, has no demonstrated effect on the national market. If Congress can regulate this under the Commerce Clause, wrote Thomas, then it can regulate virtually anything, quilting bees, clothes drives, potluck suppers throughout the 50 states. Now, Congress, rather than honor the Federalist notion that uh, the states should serve as 50 experimental uh, laboratories, has shamelessly distended uh, the Commerce Clause, unleashing it from the operative word, which is commerce. And the result is a federal government that assumes dominion over virtually all uh, human conduct. The Commerce Clause is pretty simple. It says Congress shall have power to regulate commerce among the several states. The obvious questions that are raised, what's commerce, what is among the states, and what is to regulate? Those are the three terms. Well, commerce means the exchange of goods. Among the states means between persons of one state and persons of another state. 
And to regulate means, in the context of the 1780s when this was ratified, to make regular. And that is to say, to provide, how more transactions can occur in an environment freed of state-imposed impediments like tariffs and quotas. Well, even if we rejected uh, those definitions and adopted the broadest possible meaning, suppose commerce, for example, meant um, any gainful activity, and suppose among the states means anywhere in the nation, even if it's wholly within a single state, and suppose regulate means not to remove uh, state restrictions on trade, but to impose new federal restrictions on trade. Applying those new definitions, the Commerce Clause uh, would allow the regulation of any gainful activity anywhere in the United States, but still the commerce power would not extend to include non-commerce like the production of uh, homegrown and the consumption of homegrown uh, medical marijuana. So those are the 12 cases and a little bit more detail about uh, one of those uh, cases. And um, I, I think just in concluding that we should not, as a free society, uh, have to ask for government permission uh, to participate in an election like in McConnell or to own a gun like in Miller or to pursue an honest occupation like in Caroline uh, Products. And the government should not be authorized to take somebody's home like it did in Kilo and turn it over to somebody else for their private uh, use. And those abuses of power can be minimized, but only if the Supreme Court ensures through active judicial engagement that the legislative and executive branches uh, respect the constraints imposed on them by the Constitution. Regrettably, the Supreme Court's been derelict in uh, fulfilling that obligation, and that is the story of the Dirty Dozen. Thanks very much.